You're listening to the Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, recording from Washington, D.C., as usual. And I'm your co-host, Katie Putz, and I am back in Maryland. Good to be back with you, Katie. I know we've uh, taken a bit of an extended break, uh, but it is August, uh, and I hope August is treating our listeners well, but it's good to be back with you. Yeah, it's always great to talk to you, Ankit. Yeah, and of course, um, you know, while much of the world is hopefully enjoying a slow summer, uh, geopolitics in Asia certainly uh, is far from slowing down. Uh, of course, uh, we've had, you know, I've actually received many Twitter DMs uh, and a couple emails from our listeners asking for an episode discussing recent events in the Taiwan Strait. Uh, I'm not going to take a particular position on whether or not we should be calling what happened in the first couple weeks of August 2022 the fourth Taiwan Strait crisis. Perhaps we can talk about that a bit, Katie. But of course, it's been uh, an exciting month uh, in the Taiwan Strait, exciting in the sense of eventfulness, not in terms of positive or negative developments per se. Um, so for listeners, uh, of course, what we're talking about is the visit by Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives uh, to Taiwan. Uh, her visit, of course, wasn't unprecedented. Uh, a similar visit took place 25 years ago uh, in the 1990s, but Pelosi did become the most senior member uh, of the U.S. government uh, and, the, and the senior most member of the legislative branch in particular to visit Taiwan. And that, of course, led to a set of unprecedented reactions from China, uh, including missile launches over Taiwan, joint uh, People's Liberation Army exercises uh, in seven areas surrounding Taiwan, including for the first time within Taiwan's territorial seas, um, a huge uh, set of incursions by Chinese military aircraft across the median line of the Taiwan Strait, the introduction of certain new capabilities like drones over Taiwan's outer islands of Qinmen and Matsu, and so on and so forth. We can maybe go into a little bit more detail on, on the military dimensions itself. Um, but Katie, I think the place to start, uh, and, and maybe you know you can you can tee us off a bit here, uh, is sort of the American position leading up to the visit itself. Um, the Biden administration, of course, uh, made the point that the United States has a system of government with three co-equal branches, the legislature, the executive, and the judiciary. And the president of the United States, as the head of the executive branch, can't necessarily tell Nancy Pelosi what she should or should not do. And of course, the White House ultimately came out and said that she has every right to go. Um, but tell us a little bit about the U.S. position on, on, on this whole thing. I think that might be a useful basis to start, and then we can talk a bit about the Chinese reaction. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I think it's important to point out that uh, this visit was originally scheduled for the spring, uh, but then Pelosi came down with COVID, it got canceled, got pushed back. So the fact that it happened is something that arguably for months people knew was a possibility. Um, certainly in the last couple of weeks leading up to the actual visit, there was a lot more talk and a lot more attention. Will she go? Will she, will she avoid going? Um, and then I think it's important also to note that the the Biden administration apparently tried to like subtly wave Pelosi off, say like it's not really a good time to do this, but then pretty quickly after that um, came out with I would say fairly strong statement saying as you as you noted, Pelosi has every right to make this visit. It's it's not unprecedented. This is is perfectly within um, how the United States defines uh, its one China policy, um, and so you know. In the act of, of doing this visit, Pelosi goes to Taiwan. There's a lot of reporting around that. Um, and we can definitely get into sort of the Chinese reactions and the Chinese rhetoric surrounding that. But on the U.S. side, all of the, the diplomats that I've spoken to or heard from 
sort of stress uh, that this is consistent with U.S. policy, long-term U.S. policy. Nothing has changed uh, regarding the U.S. position on Taiwan, um, which is not how I think the Chinese frame what's happening. Um, and so, you know, it, it it's one thing to say the United States is provoking a crisis. That's sort of what the what the Chinese language has been. But from the U.S. side, they're saying this is perfectly normal diplomatic visit. It's a legislative visit. The president of the United States can't tell her not to go, didn't tell her to go. Um, and so then pointed to the Chinese reaction um, as an overreaction. So Kirk Campbell uh, last Friday on a call with reporters uh, pointed out or, or stressed really that that uh, Chinese actions, quote, were fundamentally at odds with the goal of peace and stability and, and made the case that, again, the U.S. is consistent in its Taiwanese in its policy toward Taiwan and China is the one that is changing the status quo. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, what's interesting, of course, is the broader context under the Biden administration, which is that President Biden himself has made a number of statements uh, that have arguably muddled um, the U.S. position on Taiwan. Uh, Biden has explicitly said that he believes that there is a a commitment by the United States to come to Taiwan's aid, which, of course, um, has modeled the broader messaging by the administration around the fact that nothing has changed in American policy towards Taiwan. And so a bit of background, um, you had the three communiques between the United States and the People's Republic of China in 1979. After the second communique, the United States formally ended its diplomatic relationship with Taiwan, uh, adopted the One China policy, distinct from China's One China pr uh, principle. Uh, and so like any, you know, like every country around the world, um, you know, there's no country that has diplomatic relations with both Taiwan and the PRC. So when the U.S. chose to establish relations with the PRC, Congress took the lead, passed the Taiwan Relations Act, which Biden uh, in, uh, incidentally voted for at the time in the Senate, um, which primarily governs the United States relationship with Taiwan, uh, including um, providing Taiwan the defense capabilities it needs to defend itself. Uh, and so the basis of U.S.-Taiwan policy since then, which the Biden administration reemphasizes, is the Taiwan Relations Act, the three communiques as the basis for U.S.-China diplomatic normalization um, in 72, 79, and 82, uh, and the six assurances made by the Reagan administration uh, on Taiwan. And the administration has also repeatedly said uh, that it does not support Taiwan independence. All of this leads to uh, a phrase that you hear a lot in discussions on Taiwan policy, uh, which is that the United States favors the preservation of the status quo in the Taiwan Strait. Uh, yes. And what's and what's interesting about the phrase status quo is that you know arguably there isn't a single status quo in the Taiwan Strait over the last 40 years, right? Things have changed. Things are changing domestically within Taiwan. Just recently, there's public opinion surveys from within Taiwan showing that the number of Taiwanese, particularly young Taiwanese that identify as Chinese uh, is down to single digit percentages. Uh, mm -hmm. The growth of a Taiwan identity uh, is is uh, a sort of an inexorable force, Taiwanization. Um, and the other context here is that since the election of Tsai Ing-wen uh, and the Democratic Progressive Party in 2016, China has slowly but gradually been tightening its grip uh, around Taipei, uh, restricting the international space for maneuver that Taiwan has, plucking away Taiwan's diplomatic allies, uh, the countries that maintain normalized diplomatic ties with Taiwan, uh, leaving Taipei with, I believe, just uh, 16 countries, including the Vatican, that maintain official ties, uh, and cracking down in a whole number of ways. So the status quo is changing uh, over time, 
Uh, and I think, Katie, that's probably, you know, the next thing we should talk about, which is, you know, what does what do the events of August 2022 potentially mean um, going forward for Taiwan security, for the prospect of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, which is not something that is a foregone conclusion necessarily. China still favors a peaceful reunification strategy uh, by all accounts. But Xi Jinping has been very open about the fact that China will never rule out the use of force to take Taiwan if Taiwan crosses certain red lines, such as declaring independence, which uh, Tsai Ing-wen uh, is, is not going to do. But potentially in the future, uh, you know, given the trend lines in Taiwanese politics, that could be something that uh, becomes more realistic. Um, so, you know, this, this notion of where the status quo is going to go in the Taiwan Strait, I actually think is probably the most important question about the events of early 2022. Uh, I talked a little bit at the beginning about the unprecedented military actions that China took around Taiwan, uh, including the launch of ballistic missiles, uh, unprecedentedly large joint PLA exercises. Um, the concern, I think, in Taipei, or at least certain parts of Taipei, uh, including among security analysts, is that now uh, that we have seen this play out uh, going forward, um, the kinds of military activities that China will regularly undertake around Taiwan will probably be more aggressive in general. Uh, in the past, uh, you know, the median line in the Taiwan Strait, Taiwan's air defense identification zone, although certainly not treated as sacrosanct by the PLA, uh, were certainly seen as important thresholds to only be crossed somewhat rarely in peacetime. Uh, and, you know, when I say somewhat rarely, the trend line here, I think, has been decisively negative right uh, and mm -hmm. i think you know the, the folks who supported pelosi's trip sort of point this out which is that even if pelosi hadn't gone at some point something or the other would have broken the you know would have been the last straw on the camel's back and the pla probably would have expanded the scope of its activities around taiwan um so you know uh, katie i understand you know you've been sort of uh, in in contact with a few folks um you know who, uh, who who have sort of communicated the taiwanese position what do you think the taiwanese view here is on the status quo issue um and, and you know how do you sort of make sense of how the status quo might be changing yeah, so I, I, before I do that, I do want to say you made a very good point with regard to what is the status quo anyway. I think we sort of use the word to mean sort of that this is a situation that has remained stable. Um, and as you pointed out, things have changed over the last 40 years. So so what status quo and whose status quo? Um, from, the I think, the Taiwanese perspective, um, China has thrown out the status quo in crossing the median line and sort of this is a violation of, of Taiwanese space uh, in, in an unprecedented way from from that from Taipei's perspective. And that, you know, if China does this, what more might they do? Um, and I think there's also kind of an unstated concern that, you know, if you have more aggressive military measures around Taiwan, I, th I think the risk of an accident escalates, of course. And I think that's something that I I think people should be concerned about. Um, and I think the other thing to point out is, is you know, from the Taiwanese perspective, the question is, well, if, if this is China readjusting the status quo, are Taiwan's partners around the world just going to let that happen? Does China get to move what is the new normal um, and define that? And then, you know, it to go back to the earlier discussion with regard to sort of U.S. policy and sort of U.S. policymakers stressing, we've been consistent, and you very rightfully pointing out that, that there is inconsistency. I think it's worth mentioning that the U.S. position on the Taiwan question, in in my opinion at least, 
is is muddled anyway. Like the the position itself is ambiguous and it's specifically ambiguous. And so that that creates this kind of weird fluid space where it's is the US going to come to Taiwan's defense? Is the US not going to come to Taiwan's defense? And that that ambiguity is actually the policy. Um, and so that that kind of allows this space where you have Biden saying sort of Biden-esque uh, comments occasionally and then sort of diplomats walking it back and saying that's not really what he meant. Um, it's it's by design almost. Um, and so I think that creates a degree of concern in Taiwan because it's also ambiguous to them what, what the U.S. response to something like this is going to be. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is a big debate right now in D.C., uh, you know, should the U.S. adopt strategic clarity towards Taiwan? Uh, I personally don't think that's a wise move. Uh, but, you know, on the on the note of ambiguity, uh, you know, I think you're right that, you know, there has been some muddling of the message. But I actually think that strategic ambiguity, you can have sort of clarity about your ambiguity, if that makes sense. Yeah. Sort of like. The, yeah, the, the, and I'm not saying that it's it's a bad policy per se, but the. Right. The confusion is kind of part of the design. Yeah. So we have sort of, uh, you know, I guess what leaves me a little bit uncomfortable is sort of the ambiguity about our ambiguity. Uh, you know, the, yeah. <laughs> the whole sort of Biden, Biden making his statements, officials sort of walking it back and saying, you know, here's here's what we say. Here's our talking points on Taiwan. Uh, and, you know, I mean, uh, to be fair, Taiwan policy is actually one of the hardest things, I think, for a lot of folks to wrap their heads around, right? There are, you know, all of these nuances around the three communiques, the six mm -hmm. assurances, the Taiwan Relations Act, uh, where U.S. commitments begin and end to Taipei, what the nature of the U.S. commitment to sell arms to Taiwan is, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, that, I think, presents a a fairly complex, you know, set of issues uh, to sort mm -hmm. of um, properly communicate that. So so given the salience of the Taiwan Strait uh, in in broader Indo-Pacific geopolitics now, it's something that just keeps on coming up, uh, right? It's a, it's a lot more salient in the uh, in the US-China relationship. Um, you know, going back for a second to the Chinese response, uh, I do also want to, you know, sort of point out that, um, you know, when we sort of debate the notion of whether or not this was a crisis or not, uh, look, we had, we've had, historically, we've had three Taiwan Strait crises, two in the 1950s um, and one in the 1990s and the mid-90s. Um, what China did in August 2022, just a couple weeks ago, uh, militarily, uh, given the dramatic rise in Chinese national power and capabilities, eclipses what China did in any of the previous crises. But the reason why I think, you know, you might be able to make the case that what actually happened in August 2022 wasn't necessarily a crisis uh, was due to the reaction of the United States uh, and Taiwan. Uh, you know, the U.S., as you noted, Katie, uh, sort of pointed out that what China is doing is not conducive to maintaining peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. Uh, and the Taiwanese themselves sort of, you know, said that, you know, they're going to resolutely protect their interests, but they didn't do anything to escalate the situation themselves. So it might take, you know, it takes two to tango in a crisis sometimes. And so China sort of... You know, to use the phrase, you know, they sort of threw a temper tantrum about Pelosi's visit mm -hmm. uh, and the U.S. and Taiwan sort of reacted as, you know, the adults in the room, so to speak. Uh, and while that was good and de-escalatory, I think the concern uh, that at least I have, and I think it's too early to really say, you know, whether this concern is well placed or not, I think only time will tell. The concern is that by the U.S. and Taiwan sort of playing this cool, we avoided escalation, uh, which could have been dangerous. Uh, but we also, I think, fail to communicate to China that, you know, this type of this type of activity, this type of military signaling uh, really has any costs. Right. So that, again, mm -hmm. you know, goes into the question of changing the status quo. So I'm not sure what the right you know, like I, I, I do think what the Biden administration and the Taiwanese did here was totally defensible. Uh, there was no reason to escalate. Uh, in fact, I think, you know, neither side's interests would have been served by escalating. 
Um, but the concern is then that, you know, when something happens in Taiwan or some member of the DPP makes a statement that Beijing finds unacceptable, these kinds of transgressions across the median line or, or missile launches more rarely, you know, could be could be more regularized. Uh, and that, of course, is damaging to Taiwan's interests, damaging to U.S. interests. The other thing I think is important to appreciate is that, you know, China also didn't cross some important thresholds, right? I talked a bit about how they announced exclusion zones within Taiwan's uh, territorial sea, uh, but no Chinese warships entered Taiwan's territorial sea, which would have been like a very clear step to sort of indicate that, you know, China does not consider Taiwan to be sovereign. Uh, similarly, Chinese aircraft did not overfly uh, Taiwanese airspace. Uh, the ballistic missiles that overflew Taiwan, of course, were outside the Earth's atmosphere, which an anonymous Taiwanese official actually pointed out to the New York Times, which I thought was pretty interesting <laughs> given the Japanese reaction, right? We haven't mentioned this, but of course, five ballistic missiles landed in Japan's exclusive economic zone, which Tokyo sort of, um, you know, really was up in arms about. Uh, but the Taiwanese really played things cool. Uh, and so... It's interesting that China sort of, you know, I think also calibrated its actions, recognizing the risk of escalation. Uh, and here I think, you know, we we might talk about the political context. Uh, you know, Biden and Xi just had a meeting before Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. Uh, Xi Jinping is going into the 20th Party Congress later this year looking for an unprecedented third uh, term uh, as as uh, general secretary of the CCP and, uh, and president of China. Uh, and so... The role of all this signaling, I think, is partly external, partly to the United States and Taiwan, but also internally to members of the Communist Party, to the Chinese people. And so these events, I think, you know, deserve to be seen through that holistic lens. So on the topic of escalation, I think that it that's a very smart thing to point out that the United States and Taiwan clearly made a choice to not try to escalate it. Um, but as you also pointed out, there's no the question is then what what is the response um and and if this happens again um china sort of engages in these kind of provocative measures what how far does china have to go to get a response from from taiwan in the united states and i think on the other hand it was a smart calculation because i think any kind of even subtly escalatory response to this crisis, non-crisis, um, would have in, inflamed China even more and sort of opened the door to further escalation. I think that's something everybody wants to avoid. Um, and, you know, I think from the U.S. perspective, they they know that they're stuck with Xi. So that I think they're trying to figure out how to navigate the future without making it worse. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I'll be, I'll be very open here. I mean, I, I didn't think that Pelosi's visit was necessarily a great idea. Uh, you know, I, I do recognize that there were benefits showing that Congress continues to stand by Taiwan and that Taiwan has partners, but the costs to Taiwanese national security and to U.S. interests, in my opinion, outweighed those benefits. But, you know, taking that into account, uh, I think basically the way in which this has resolved itself, I think, is far from the worst for China and the United States. I do think, however, uh, it's not necessarily the best set of outcomes for Taiwan. And I think, of course, the acute phase of this crisis, uh, you know, whether or not you call it a crisis again, uh, I don't have a particular position on, but you know, let's just call it a crisis. Um, I think the acute phase is over, uh, although China is still conducting exercises given the next, uh, you know, senatorial delegation that has just arrived uh, in uh, uh, in Taipei. But um, the broader punishments on Taipei, I think, are going to continue, uh, right? There's going to be sanctions, uh, disinformation campaigns, cyber attacks on Taiwan, all of which China has carried out and has been carrying out. That's going to continue increase in uh, increasing in tempo. Uh, the other thing, you know, that you pointed out, Katie, is that 
The Biden administration, I think, is genuinely trying to increase the scope of the U.S.-China relationship along a number of axes, right? Basically, mm -hmm. they want to cooperate with China where necessary while competing. And so China's response to the United States after this crisis, the sort of eight measures that Beijing announced, including the cancellation of maritime security dialogues and criminal, uh, you know, criminal justice cooperation talks and climate talks, really shows that Beijing sort of interprets these as pressure points. I think they, you know, the, the view mm -hmm. in Beijing is that the U.S. wants these more than China does. Uh, and of course, you know, what was left out on the list of talks that China called off were trade talks, which I think China cares yeah. about a little bit more than the U.S. might at this point. Uh, and so uh, that, I think, points to, uh, you know, a negative trend line, at least in the short term. Uh, but reportedly, Biden and Xi are going to meet in person uh, later this year in Asia. Yes. So on the, the call of Campbell last last Friday, um, from where we are sitting now in time, um, he one of the other journalists asked if that meeting was still going to happen. And, and the only all he would say is that they're still talking about it. So at least from the U.S. perspective, they're hoping that there will be a Biden G meeting. Um, I think there's there's definitely some um, strategy to saying we want a meeting if because then if the meeting doesn't materialize, it's very easy to kind of blame it on the Chinese as they're the reason it fell through. Um, so I, I, I think that was a little a little bit of strategery. Uh, but I think there's certainly an interest in that. Um, in that call, another thing that, that he mentioned was that the Chinese response targeted things that the world cares about. So the climate change talks, for example, he said, you know, it doesn't really damage the United States to stop talking about those things, but it does damage the world, which is again, sort of positioning China as this irresponsible actor um, and look at the United States for being responsible about this. So there's definitely some playing to the external audience um, that that I, I think is worth remarking on. Right. And, you know, I mean, I always uh, in in discussions, particularly about the internal Chinese dynamics, I think it's always worth noting that, you know, there are significant unknowns about the political dynamics at the highest levels of the CCP. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, people largely speculate about, uh, you know, why she had to react in this way ahead of the 20th Party Congress. There is an inductive logic to it, which is that she is going into this important party Congress and needs to show that he's sort of strong and avoid any sort of criticism from inside. But really, we don't have a good evidentiary basis for, you know, where she is sort of facing potential challengers or whether challengers even exist uh, or whether, you know, this is simply something that's an emotive matter for him, uh, which I mm -hmm. think uh, certain analysts of China have made the case that she personally, uh, you know, regardless of the power consolidation considerations, regardless of the 20th Party Congress, for she personally, the Taiwan issue is is a um, is an emotionally salient issue. And, and he sort of sees the United States as as fundamentally, you know, pushing back uh, on China. So, you know, I think Regardless of not whether you consider this a crisis, I think, uh, you know, there will be more bumps in the road uh, in the Taiwan Strait uh, in uh, in the coming years. And uh, I think they'll largely be, you know, due to China's, I mean, uncompromising position. Uh, China also just released a white paper on Taiwan. I mean, really, this is... Um, this is, you know, an absolute priority for the Chinese Communist Party leadership. Uh, and so as the U.S. tries to uh, communicate its continuing support for Taipei and and tries to actually multilateralize support for Taiwan and for mm -hmm. maintaining the status quo in the Taiwan Strait, uh, I think this is far from the last crisis. We'll see. I would agree with that.
All right, Katie, uh, I think we'll leave it there for today. Uh, sorry, listeners, for the extended break between the last episode and this one. I uh, hope to be back a little bit sooner with another episode in August. Uh, certainly no shortage of issues to talk about. Um, we may go back to the Korean Peninsula since we are about to see some U.S.-Korea uh, field training exercises, which haven't happened until 20, since 2017, and North Korea may have a response to that. Um, but of course, uh, you know, lots going on around the region and uh we'll be back to talk about it all so uh katie thanks for joining me as always it's always a pleasure great uh for listeners if you like what you heard on the show make sure you subscribe so you can keep up with future episodes and if you've been a subscriber for a while please leave us a review uh, wherever you get your shows we really appreciate that thanks a lot for listening and we'll be back soon with more